Now hear the word of the Lord from John 13, verses 18 through 30. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. If you are just joining us, my name is Justin, and I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and we are slowly working our way through the Gospel of John, verse by verse, and we have come to the last few days of Jesus' life on this earth. Chapter 13 really marks a significant change in our study and in the life and ministry of Jesus. The first 12 chapters covered roughly three years of Jesus' ministry, and the next eight chapters cover just a matter of days. This is meant to teach us something very important. Jesus came to this earth from heaven to die. His death and subsequent resurrection is the most important event in human history. The Westminster Catechism tells us that Scripture is primarily meant to do two things for us. One, it teaches us what to believe, so it shows us the gospel, what God has done to save us. And secondly, it reveals to us our duty to obey God in all of life. That means the Scriptures are not meant to answer all of our questions or tell us everything we would like to know about Jesus. We know very little about Jesus' upbringing and almost nothing about his teen years. I wish we did. That would be fun to know. 
right? You're dealing with teenagers, it'd be fun. Be like, well, Jesus didn't do it like that, right? Right, no? But that is not necessary, necessary for our salvation. At the end of John's gospel, he writes, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So what we get in the four eyewitness accounts of Jesus' ministry are basically the high points, the most important and significant events. But these events come to us in rapid succession, one after the other. It's like we are flying through the Gospels, three years of Jesus' ministry, at 100 miles per hour. Jesus is born, Jesus grows up, Jesus begins his ministry, Jesus heals the sick, raises the dead, walks on water, preaches and teaches and foretells his own death. And then the narrative drops down into super slow-mo and we spend significantly more time looking at and pondering his impending death, betrayal, crucifixion, and resurrection. Think about the movie Braveheart. The movie basically spends three hours showing us the high points of William Wallace's life and work. We see him as a kid, we see him fall in love, we see him grow as a warrior and a freedom fighter, and then in the last few moments of the movie, we witness his brutal death. Why? Well, though his death was important, It was his life that was so inspiring. His life was the point of the movie. Well, it's almost the opposite with Jesus, which is what makes Christianity so unique. Jesus' life was important. It's absolutely vital that we know that he was born of a virgin and he lived a sinless life. If he didn't live perfectly, then he couldn't be our sinless substitute on the cross. He couldn't pay our ransom and buy us out of our slavery to sin. This is one of the reasons why I think we can trust the scriptures and the claims of Jesus. They are not like a story that we want to be told. They are not like a man-made epic or a man-made fiction. No one wants a religion like this. No one would want a hero like this. Look at this guy. He, he did everything right in his life. He was the son of the most high God. And look what it got him. Brutal, public execution and humiliation. Hey, if you join this group, this might happen to you. Which it did to the mo- most of the apostles. They got killed in similar ways. Now, who wants to watch a movie that spends 30 minutes on the good times of a man's life and three hours on his death, even if it ends finally with resurrection? That's kind of a depressing movie. I don't know about you, but I can only stand watching The Passion of the Christ at most once a year. And I don't even always do that. Sometimes on Good Friday, my kids are like, let's watch The Passion. I'm like, okay. But again, the scriptures tell us what we need to know and not what we want to know. And what we learn from today's text is that Jesus knew what was coming. He knew how it was going to come 
And it was all going to happen just like the scriptures foretold it was going to happen. That's the Old Testament Jesus is referring to. He says in our text today, the scriptures will be fulfilled. In other words, they will come to pass. The story has already been written and it's going to play out exactly like God promised it would play out in the Old Testament. So here we are in our text today. We are at the Last Supper, the night of Jesus' betrayal. And what we're going to learn from today's text is that this word betrayal, it's going to come up several times. It's a key theme to this night. Jesus here is eating with his disciples for the last time. He's already washed their feet. He has served them in such a way to both give them an example to follow and to point forward to his ultimate service for them that will happen on the cross. And then Jesus lays back at the table and he begins to tell them that one of them, one of the 12, one of the chosen ones, one of the ones that Jesus handpicked to be his apostle is about to turn on him. There's this interesting phrase at the end of verse 30, and it was night. This isn't just a reference to a time of day. Of course, it was night. That's when they celebrated the Passover. But it was also one of the darkest moments in human history. The light of the world was being betrayed. One of Jesus' closest followers had made a deal with the darkness and the darkness had swallowed up Judas's heart and was about to plunge the whole fellowship headlong into the darkness of betrayal. Now, if you have ever been betrayed by someone you love, someone you love deeply, you know how dark this can feel. There may be no, uh, no more darker moment in a human life than to be betrayed by one he loves. There's nothing more shocking, more hurtful, more depressing than to be betrayed by someone you thought loved you. It can throw your whole life into despair and suck all of the light out of your life. To betray someone is to both step into the darkness and then try to pull their life into the darkness with you. It's a heinous sin against God, against yourself, and against another person. Today we get to see how Jesus deals with betrayal. We see how Jesus prepares his disciples for the pain of betrayal, and I pray that he would do the same for us. This morning, let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for calling us into worship this morning, to forget, forgiving us of our sins, reminding us of the beauty and the truth of the gospel. We got to see that on display as people profess their faith in you and baptized and brought into the kingdom community. We thank you for all these wonderful gifts. But Father, we want to be thankful for your greatest gift, and that is the gift of your word that reminds us 
what you've done for us and how we are to respond to it. And so this morning, I pray that you would prepare our minds and our hearts to receive your word, that we would not sit here flippantly thinking about what we, what we need to do later. Father, you would focus our attention on you. We would give our attention to the king's words to us this morning, and we would receive them as such. We would put a high value and a high honor on the word of God this morning. Lord, I am not good enough to preach your gospel, and so I ask that you would Work through me and in me. Would you think through my mind? Would you speak through my vocal cords? Would it be all of you and none of me? Would your sheep hear your voice and would you call them out of the darkness into your marvelous light? Would you warm our hearts where they need to be warmed? Would you do the work that you want, us, want to do in us this morning? And now we also want to pray for Isla and Tona and anyone else in our church who's dealing with sickness and suffering. And we ask that you would strengthen them, that you would be near to them, that you would drive that sickness from their body, that they would be, begin to stand, they would be able to stand up even this year and declare the goodness of God and healing their sick bodies. Would you do this for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, we're going to jump into our text this morning, chapter 13, verse 18. Open your Bibles. I will walk you through this together. Verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Here Jesus is using the word chosen in two different ways. First, he's talking about the disciples he chose. He obviously chose all 12 disciples. He called them to himself. But there's another level, a deeper level of meaning to chosen. And he knows who's been chosen, who the father has given him, who are going to respond to him. And he knows 11 of them will and one of them won't. And it's not a surprise to Jesus. Remember, Jesus last week has already said that not all of the disciples are clean. This was in reference to Judas, and it meant that he had not been born again. He had not been washed from his sins. Now Jesus begins to elaborate. Jesus quotes Psalm 41, verse 9 a verse that had been penned hundreds of years beforehand that said, quote, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This verse here speaks of intimate betrayal. A person who was, you trusted, a person who you shared bread with, a person that was an intimate friend, then betrays you. The scripture says, lifted up his heel against me. Most scholars believe that this line about lifting up his heel against me is referring to a horse. If you were behind a horse and it lifts up its heel, that is a bad sign that it's about to go bad for you, right? You're about to be kicked. Jesus here says, one of my close friends in whom I trusted, I opened my heart to, I opened my life to, I broke bread with, in whose feet I just washed, one of the closest ones to me is about to betray me. Then he goes on and tells them why he's telling them this. Verse 19, I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus isn't paranoid here. 
He's not angry or bitter. He's not doing this to expose Judas in the moment so that everyone could hate him, right? It's not like the, so you think, or, you know, who, who wants to be a millionaire spotlight? Zero, zeroes in on Judas at this moment and all the disciples, you know, like are repulsed by him. He's telling his disciples that he's going to be betrayed because after it happens, he wants them to know that Jesus was the son of God and knew beforehand what was going to, hap- what was going to happen. See, Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion was not a detour from God's plan. It wasn't a failure. It was the divine plan all along. In other words, this prophecy was meant to strengthen the disciples' faith. And then later, after it had come to pass, it was to go, oh, he foretold this. Okay, everything is not failing right now. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. Whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. This is called the mission of God. God, it's called missio Dei in the Latin. God sent the son. Jesus was a missionary to come and save us from our sins. And then after Jesus' life, burial, and resurrection, ascension to the father, the father and the son send the Holy Spirit to fill the church. And what happens is the father, son, and Holy Spirit now sends the church. So every single Christian is now a missionary. The father sent the son, the father, son, and Holy Spirit send the church. The son had to walk the dark paths of betrayal, and we will too. Jesus tells us in Luke 12, verse 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not, little flock. Jesus has been betrayed. Jesus walked through betrayal, and we will have to too, but it is the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Here we see a true picture of Jesus's humanity. Jesus was not like Superman, right? Superman was always Superman. He played Clark Kent, but this is, if you didn't know this, if you shot Clark Kent, the bullets would still bounce off right? He didn't need the cape and all the stuff. He was Superman all the way down. Well, Jesus is both God and man, right? And so Jesus as man was troubled in his spirit. He knows what's about to happen, but that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It might hurt more to know what's coming, right? If you knew beforehand, hey, in this football game, you're going to break your leg. I think I'll take a time out here, coach. I think I'm going to sit on the, I'll just pass this one up, right? Sometimes, because the pain of the, the, the betrayal is, is, is enough to kill a person, but to know beforehand that it's going to happen, that creates anxiety, fear, dread. It compounds the problem. Jesus is troubled in his spirit. And that word troubled for us might just be flippant. Oh, troubled. But it's, it's, 
deep anxiety. The darkness wants to overtake him. The light of the world is standing on a corner and he sees the darkness around the corner and he's about to step into it. The betrayer wants to suck him into his orbit and cause him despair and lose his hope in God. You can't even keep the closest ones to you. You chose 12 and one of them is a devil. See, Jesus was tempted in all things just like we are. Yet Jesus does not give in to these temptations. Jesus is troubled, but he never sins. John 1.5 says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. I imagine the disciples here to think of Jesus as a serious buzzkill. They're having a nice Passover meal, reclining at the table, some good food and wine, and Jesus drops this bomb in the midst of them. One of you is a betrayer. Everybody's like, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? One One of us? The closest ones to you who've seen who you are and what you've done? But you know, there's one guy in the room that can't handle the awkwardness. He can't handle the elephant in the room. He can't handle that. And so what does he do? He takes action, right? Peter steps up. Of course it's Peter. And he sees John. They're, laying, they're all laying on their, usually on their left hand elbow and their feet are kicked back from the table. And he sees Peter right next to, or I mean, I'm sorry, Peter sees John right next to Jesus. And he's like, It says he motions, I love it. He motions, he motions to John. Jesus says this kind of obtuse, one of you is going to betray me. He's like, he's like, who is asking? Everybody's like, oh, okay. Peter's like. Verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, which is the first time this phrase is used, is going to be used several times. This is how John refers to himself in his own gospel. He doesn't name himself. He just says, the one whom Jesus loved. It's like the love of Jesus completely redefined his whole life, which is important, what we're going to see next week and then weeks after, because Peter betrays Jesus too. The disciple whom he loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. He's like, "Find, find out, bro. Who's he talking about? Right? So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, so more than likely Jesus is behind him, he's laying on his left hand, and he just kind of leans back to Jesus, so he's really close to Jesus here, and he just kind of more than likely whispers and says, Lord, who is it? Who is the betrayer? Which, one's, which one of us is going to do this? Now, more than likely, he does this so no one else can hear. Because later on, in verses 28, 29, it tells us the disciples thought that Judas was just going off to buy supplies for the, um, the next meal, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or maybe giving money to the poor. They didn't really, so Jesus didn't make a public spectacle out of this thing. He did it privately. 
So what does Jesus do? Verse 25. So that disciple, or I'm sorry, verse 26. Jesus answered, more than likely in a whisper, it's he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, so he took a piece of bread and he probably dipped it into the wine or he could have dipped it into like any type of meat sauce that was there. And he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. So Jesus here gives this dipped piece of bread to Judas and Judas eats it. Now, if you can recall in the earlier parts of this chapter, John tells us that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. Here we're reminded that sin is like a crouching tiger. God says to Cain in Genesis 4, 7, sin is crouching at the door. It's desire is contrary to you, or its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. In other words, we will be tempted. Satan will put desires into your hearts, and if you give in to them, if you don't fight them and bring them to Jesus and confess them and turn from them, they will overtake you and they will enslave you. They will kill you and will destroy your life. Sin is no plaything. Sin is no naughty thing, putting your hand in the cookie jar. Satan had tempted Judas to betray Jesus. We don't really know how he did this. Was Jesus failing to meet Judas' expectation of a Messiah or a king? Jesus wasn't very kingly in his act. He, he was labeled a drunkard, a friend of sinners, Maybe Judas didn't like that. We don't know. What we do know is that Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Judas was willing to step into the darkness and try to pull Jesus into the darkness for money. The devil had whispered into his ear, this Jesus isn't the son of God. He's probably going to get killed anyways. Why don't you make a little money off the deal? Look at Jesus' life. He's always fighting with the Jewish leaders. People are really uncertain about him. He's going to wind up dead anyways. Make some money off the deal. And what we know about Judas is Judas didn't rule over his temptation. He didn't conquer his temptation. He didn't put to death that temptation. He didn't confess it and put his trust in Christ. James, the brother of Jesus, later writes this in James 1, 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Listen, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So this Satan was tempting Judas. But each person, listen to this, is tempted 
when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We all have our own desires. Some of us desire comfort. Some of us desire fame. Some of us desire riches. Some of us desire whatever it is. We all have our own desires. And this word lure, think of a fishing lure, right? Certain types of fish like certain type of lures. Well, here's the deal. Satan knows the type of fish you are. And he's, going, he's not going to give you something you don't find enticing, you don't find desirable. He can kill you with legalism, being a perfect person that tries to obey all the rules, just as much as he can with licentiousness, throwing away all the rules and just doing your own thing. He doesn't care how he does it. He just wants to destroy you. So he baits the hook and he throws it out to Judas and Judas is led away by his own desire. Then that desire, listen, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. In other words, temptation is like a seed that goes into the ground. It starts popping up and what you're meant to do as soon as that temptation pops up is smash that little sprout. That's what you... But if you don't, it continues to grow. And as it grows, it becomes more and more difficult to destroy and to uproot. Judas allowed his desires, unchecked, unrepented of, to grow. And eventually it says that sin, right, gives birth or brings forth death. Here we see Judas completely lured and enticed by his own desire to make some money off the deal. He let that desire grow into full flower and become sin, and that sin will ultimately lead to his own death, a brutal and disgusting death. He will later commit suicide and hang there until his body literally rots and his guts burst out on the ground. Sin is not cute. Sin is not a plaything. Remember, Jesus comes to give us life and life more abundantly. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. It doesn't matter if the candy looks sweet and the candy tastes sweet. If it's poison, it's bad. So Satan tempts Judas promises him some earthly rewards. He gets some money in his pocket only to enter into him. To enter into him. Judas becomes possessed by Satan. You don't play with the devil. You don't play with the devil's things. So the devil enters into him And then when Judas felt bad about his sin, he was too far gone to even repent of it. He felt bad about it, didn't know what else to do, so he kills himself with his guilt. The devil is an evil liar. He will promise you everything and deliver you over to your own demise. He dwells in the dark and wants nothing more than to pull you into the darkness with him. The devil deals with lies. Lies that lead us to the darkness, darkness which leads us to despair and death. This 
truth is on brutal display in our culture today, where the devil is whispering and people in the culture are creating content and creating movies and books and all these different things to create sexual confusion in the minds of young people, to whisper into them their ears, you're not a boy, you're not defined biologically by your sex, you're not a girl. And then what does that lead, that confusion, maybe it stirs up a desire in them, that confusion them, leads them into all kinds of practices that ultimately will destroy them. Transgender medicine, transgender healthcare, it's called. And what we're talking about is castrating humans. We're talking about cutting off male genitalia. This is disturbing, but it's what's happening. Cutting gaping holes in their private parts that will never heal up, that they have to take antibiotics to keep them from healing up, that requires hormones for the rest of their life that they'll never function the same again. And then if down the road they change their mind, it's irreversible. This is a lie from Satan. And if you don't have the courage to stand up and tell the truth, at least just don't go along with the lies. It's not healthcare. No person who's taken the Hippocratic Oath could actually, in good faith and conscience, do that to a person. This is Satan's MO. And all the while, and we know that the suicide rate is highest among transgender people, right? And guess what? All of the surgery does nothing to deal with that. The suicide rates are just as high after. Right, why? Something's wrong with me. I'm not normal. I'm not right in my body. I must change all these things, do all these things. You get them done, it's irreversible. You're still not fixed. It still hasn't healed you. Why? It's a false gospel from Satan. Promises you everything, delivers nothing but confusion and chaos and despair. So Jesus looks at his betrayer, Judas, and says, what you're going to do, do quickly. Man. Listen, Jesus was the most courageous man to ever live. Courage isn't just one of the virtues. Courage is the foundation of every virtue. If you're not courageous, you won't be moral when it gets difficult. Jesus is staring at the darkness. His clo- one of his closest companions is about to betray him and he looks at him and says, get on with it, boy. That's my interpretation. <laughs> what you're gonna do, do quickly. Go ahead with it. Do your worst. I'm not afraid. I am well aware of the evil in your heart. I'm well aware that, you've been, that Satan has entered into you and Satan is here present at the Last Supper. I knew you from the beginning when I called you, when I chose you. I knew, I've already said, one of you is a devil. Well, you're that devil. Here we see the difference between compassion and empathy. Jesus refuses to bend the truth. Jesus says, empathy jumps into somebody's suffering, jumps into somebody's pain with them, and loses themselves in the process. If Jesus was empathetic, he would say, Judas, 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 please don't do it, Judas, please don't do it. He doesn't do that. He's to give him enough warnings. He says, what you're going to do, you've already decided to do. Go ahead. He knows he's going to his own death. Jesus doesn't fall over all over himself 
trying to contextualize himself to the lowest common denominator, the devil that's in the midst of them. He says, go do it, boy. Verse 28. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought, because Judas had the money bag, that's, that's a key detail. Why was, Jesus tempt, why was Judas tempted over riches? Well, he was the accountant, it looks like. He's the one that, look at all that, look at this. Jesus is pop, look at all this money. I think some of this money belongs to me. Envy, right? He was probably a government official. <laughs> look at everybody else's money. I want my hand in that pot. They thought he was saying Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, feast of unleavened bread, or that he should give something to the poor. So the disciples didn't really get what was going on. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he, Judas, immediately went out, and it was night. Now, what are we supposed to learn from this text of Scripture? A few things. One, Jesus is in complete control. He knows what's about to happen to him, and he is not turning away from it. Jesus is the most courageous man to have ever lived. He willingly ignites the spark that will lead to his own death and crucifixion. Get on with it, boy. Second one, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the darkest day in their lives. See, Judas didn't just betray Jesus. He betrayed the whole fellowship. Jesus knows that once he is hung on the rugged Roman cross, all of his disciples are going to lose hope. They're, going, they're all going to betray Jesus in one way or another. Like sheep without a shepherd, they're going to run astray. And so it's easy to lose hope when our lives aren't going like we thought they should. When suffering comes, when betrayal comes, it wants to snuff out the light. It wants to destroy our faith. But Jesus knows once the shock wears off, they're going to remember the words that Jesus spoke to them this night. The betrayal was a part of the plan all along. It's not a failure. It was the plan. Friends, darkness comes for us all. All of us will have unmet expectations in this life. All of us will be betrayed in some form or fashion in our lives. Jesus tells us that as our teacher and as our Lord, people treated him a certain way, we should expect the same thing. He says, they hated me, they'll hate you. They betrayed me, they'll betray you. But we need to see something else. Like Peter, later on in this chapter, all of us will be surprised by our own ways that we betray our Lord. So what this text is showing us, and, and we don't think about this very often. Again, we, we think of sin in some kind of naughty ways, some kind of random list that we break it. It's like an IRS tax code, you know? It's not sin. All sin is a personal betrayal of Christ. See, in the moment of temptation... We are presented with a scenario where we can choose between Jesus 
and all that he offers us or some created thing, some idol. See, every temptation is what can satisfy my desires? Is it Christ or is it something from the world? See, this is a horrible miscalculation on Judas's part. Jesus, what you offer me won't satisfy me, but what 30 pieces of silver will, that will. That could pay my mortgage. That could pay my bills. And every time we sin, we choose to betray Jesus. We choose something over him. There's this haunting line in a song we sing on Good Friday it says, Judas sold you for 30, I'd have done it for less. See, if we have eyes to see, we've all done it for less. We've betrayed Jesus for some fleeting pleasures on the internet. We've betrayed Jesus for comfort, preferring to live our life on our own demands rather than to submit to the Lordship of Christ. See, all sin is nothing less than a personal betrayal of Jesus Christ. But third, here's the last and maybe the most important thing we can learn from this passage of Scripture. The thing that kind of knocked me over this week. Look at Jesus' posture towards his betrayer. Because this is his posture towards us, even when we betray him. Three things. One, Jesus invited his betrayer into his inner ring of disciples. Think about that. Jesus gave Judas intimate access to his life and ministry. He called a man who was sitting in the darkness and invited him into the light and lived with him and ate with him and walked with him. He did all the miracles in front of him. He gave Judas access to the living son of God. Secondly, Jesus warned throughout all the Gospels, one of you is a betrayer. Again, this is not empathy. Keep it things soft for everybody. No, this is compassion here. One of you is a betrayer. What is that? He's warning. That warning was meant to bring about a heart check for Judas and repentance. God does this for us every week in this gathering, in the confession of sin, in the preaching of the gospel. God lovingly convicts us of our sins and calls us to turn from them and turn to him for forgiveness. So we see Jesus calling Judas to be in his inner ring. We see Jesus warning Judas over and over and over about the dangers of sin, the deceitfulness of sin, that one of them is going to be a betrayal, betrayer. And then lastly, what we saw last week. Jesus washed Judas' feet right, along, right alongside all the other disciples. Think about this. Judas has already made a deal with the devil. And he's got to sit there and let the Son of God wash his feet. The Son of God, heaven's Son, stooping to serve even his betrayer, now, what was this meant to do? This was meant to melt the heart of, G of Judas, but Judas refused. Maybe it was the final straw for Judas. This can't be a king. What king wa would wash my feet? Get up from there, you son of God. 
The Puritans had a famous saying, and it went like this. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. In other words, if you have a heart of ice, nearness to Jesus will melt it. Peter betrays Jesus too. And yet Peter repents of his sin. His heart is melted by the love of God displayed for him in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So Peter repents and returns to Christ. Peter had a heart of ice. But if you have a heart of clay, the same sun that melts the, heart, melts the ice will turn your heart rock hard, diamond hard, and you will end up like Judas. See, the truth is, we have all betrayed Jesus in one way or another. The question for us today is, has Jesus melted your cold heart? If not, you can ask him to do that today. See, Jesus is inviting you in. Jesus is stooping to serve you. See Jesus living the life that you should have lived. See Jesus dying the death of a betrayer, even though he never betrayed anyone. See Jesus doing all of that in order to save you from the darkness that wants to destroy your life. To save you from your sin. If God gives you eyes to see that this morning... The sun will rise in your heart and begin to melt that heart of ice. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we are so thankful to be called your children. We are so thankful to know what Jesus has done for us. We invite you here through your Holy Spirit to melt our hearts of ice. We want to be warmed by you. We want you to do the work in us that needs to be done, cutting out a heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh, filling it with the Holy Spirit, empowering us to be quick to repent of our sins and confess our sins and turn from our sins and turn back to Christ. Lord Jesus, I pray that this scene would melt our hearts and we'd turn to you in faith. And for all of those in this room that have already turned to you in faith and turned from their sins, that we would turn now to the beauty of your table, that the Last Supper, which was overshadowed by this act of betrayal, other in the, in the Lord's Supper now, we're reminded that you call us in, that you forgive us, that you gave your body, you gave your blood so that we could be made into your family. So we pray now, Father of mercies, thank you for this gift of bread, which we confess provides us with the body of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask you to enable us to eat it in faith and to be made more fully members of his heavenly body through Christ our Lord. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of this wine, which we confess provides us with the blood of your son, our Savior. We ask you to enable us to drink of it in faith and to be conformed more and more to the image of his death through Christ our Lord. Jesus, strengthen us, strengthen our faith in this meal. We pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen.